Philippians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse... Actually, we're going to go back to verses 6 and 7 just to tie that into what Aaron taught us last week, Pastor Aaron. Let's go ahead and pray, though, and then we'll jump into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are the way maker. That, God, you are always moving, you are always working, even when we can't see it. And, Lord, tonight, as we consider your word... Lord, we pray that you would just minister to our hearts. Once again, we lift up those in Ukraine that are suffering just greatly, even now. That, Lord, you would give just protection. Thank you for the way that you've been working to get people out of the country and to safety. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for those brave men and women who are serving over there and just seeking to come alongside those who are in need. We pray just for your continued strength. We give you tonight, we thank you for your word. We pray you'd minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we left off in verse 7, where Pastor Aaron gave us really a key to dealing with anxiety, that it was prayer. And remember, a major theme of the book of Philippians is that of joy, and anxiety is something that robs us of our joy. When you are worried and stressed out, you're not a joyful person, right? You you can be a very agitated person when you find yourself in that place. And over 40 million Americans suffer annually from anxiety disorders. And I think those numbers have escalated greatly um, in the midst of COVID. And even now, as people are beginning to stress about the economy, we're stressed out. And when we're stressed out, it can affect our joy. So we ended our study last week considering two powerful verses. Look at verse 6 again. Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul says, hey, instead of being stressed out, pray. Bring your needs to God, and I love this, and the peace of God which surpasses your understanding. In other words, you know, we, we, we are, we're always looking for peace that comes from understanding. This is a peace that surpasses understanding. And so in other words, we could say that even when things in our life are not making sense, God's peace is guarding or protecting our hearts. So when people come to you and they know what you're going through and they say, how are you not worried? How are you not stressed out? And you're like, it's God. I've just been giving this to God. So the question is this for all of us tonight. Are you going to carry your burdens or are you going to cast your burdens? Because remember Peter said, casting all your cares, all your burdens upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. 
That's what we do when we bring those things to God in prayer. We're casting our cares upon him instead of carrying them. Well, as we pick up tonight, Paul is going to share that the key to maintaining joy is not just in that we pray, but it's also related to how we think. Look at verse 8. Finally, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, not just here, but these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The word finally indicates that Paul has arrived at the climax of his teaching on spiritual stability. And the principle that he's about to relate is both the summation of all the others, but also the key to implementing them. The phrase meditate or dwell on these things introduces this really important truth. That spiritual stability is a result of how a person thinks. I can pray and give the concerns of my heart over to the Lord. And, and I can experience the Lord in that moment filling my heart with his peace. But here's the thing. In order to maintain that peace, to keep it with me, I need to keep thinking the right thoughts. I need to keep thinking in the right way. So he says here, whatever things, he's going to talk about the things that we should be thinking on and dwelling on and meditating on. He says, whatever things are true. The word true denotes the actuality of something. So we're, we're, there's no fake news here, in other words, okay? It's that which is true. It's that which is actual. It's interesting, there was a survey that was done that revealed 8% of the things that people worried about were legitimate matters. They were things that were true. 8%. The other 92% were either imaginary or things that never happened or involved matters that over which people had no control anyway. Isn't that interesting? 92% were things that were either imaginary, they never happened, or the majority, I would say, just things that we have no control on and, and control over. And my question is always, why do we worry about things that we can't control, right? Why do we do that? But we do that. It's like, it's like dwelled up within us. So Paul's saying here, focus on that what is, which is true. You know, Jesus prayed to his father, sanctify them, he said. That word sanctify means to set them apart from the world and under yourself. Make them holy, in other words. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is talking there in chapter 6 about the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. We are in a war, and he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he says, and put on the whole armor of God. This is how you're going to stand. You put on the whole armor of God, and the first piece of armor that he mentions is the belt of truth. And the belt of truth is not about you being truthful, 
That's no combatant to the attacks of the enemy. No, the, tr- the armor of God is all related to who you are in Christ. It's all related to your identity in Jesus. And so the belt of truth is all connected to who Jesus is. It's connected to who he is and, and who we are in him. It's connected to his way and his heart and the truth about him. And so Paul's call for biblical thinking is especially relevant in our culture because the focus today is so much on emotion and pragmatism. So the importance of serious thinking about biblical truth is often downplayed in our culture because people no longer ask, well, is that true? Instead, they ask, does it work or how does it make you feel? And those two questions can be really, really dangerous. We need to ask, is it true? What does God's word say about this? So Paul starts with the truth because just like with the armor of God, everything else is connected to it. Everything that he's going to mention here is connected to where we get truth from. Are we going to get it from God's word or are we going to get it from the opinions of others? Are we going to get it from the word of God or are we going to get it from our culture or our own feelings? Truth is the key. So he starts with that. Then he says, whatever things are noble, that word is honorable. Some of your Bibles might actually use that word. It means worthy of respect or entitled honor. It's that which inspires reverence and awe. Now catch this. It comes, that word honorable comes from the word revere or to worship. So in other words, we could say that Paul is saying this, spend your time thinking on the things that are going to cause you to worship God. How novel is that? Right? Focus on those things that are going to cause you to, to, to worship God and your heart to be directed vertically. You know, after the prophecy update on uh, Sunday night, one of the guys in the church said to me, he says, you know, I think I, I think I watch Fox News too much. I think it's having a negative effect on me, you know. And, and, and maybe that's, I would, I would answer that question, well, does it leave you anxious? Or does it leave you angry? You know? Or does it leave you hopeful? I mean, I'm all, in, I'm all about being informed, but sometimes we, we can just take that too far. I love the story of David there in 1 Samuel chapter 17. When David is coming to the battlefield, and there's Goliath that's out in the midst of the valley and he's, you know, making fun of the army of Israel and he's making fun of God and, and he's out there every single day, twice a day for 40 days, 80 days or 80 times. They've been listening to Goliath just pop off and everybody is scared to death. No one wants to go and fight him. He's saying, bring me, send me a man. And here comes little David. He's probably 15 years old. And he comes and sees that, per- that situation from a whole different perspective. He looks and sees Goliath. And he's like, who is that uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? I'll go fight him. Why did David have such a different perspective? Well, 
the, the guys who put together the, what is known as the Chronological Bible, I love the Chronological Bible, because these scholars had wrote the, the, the Bible in a, and they put it together in a chronological form. And in the life of David, what they do in First and Second Samuel is they place the Psalms that David read where they would go and fit in the narrative. And so they place Psalm 19 right before First Samuel 17 when David is going to meet Goliath. And what is David writing about in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. That's what his focus was on. His focus was vertical. His focus was on his big God. And so when David comes and he sees the big giant, he's like, well, he's not bigger than my God. My God can take him out. And so I love this idea of focusing on that which is honorable, that which is going to cause us to worship. Then he says, whatever things are just, then he, that means what is right. It's, it's whatever is in perfect harmony with God's eternal, unchanging standards that have been revealed in his word. It's asking, is it scripturally right? That's where my focus is. Again, I'm not listening to others' opinions. I'm not listening to culture. I'm not listening to my own feelings. I'm going to filter this through the word of God. It's saying, you know what? I want God's heart on this matter. I want to know how God thinks about this. And it's understanding how God's justice and love go hand in hand. And then he says, and whatever is pure. Pure is that which is free from defilements. It's stainless. It's that which is uh, not contaminated in any way. It's that which is morally and inwardly pure. Now, this is what's really interesting. The word pure in the Greek is hagnos, and it means that which is holy and morally clean and undefiled. But that word hagnos, catch this, don't miss this, was used ceremonially to describe that which had been cleaned or cleansed so it could be used in the temple. It could be used in the act of worship. So it's the bowl that they would use to wash their hands after you know the sacrifices. That had to be ceremonially made clean. And I love this idea. It's the idea of focusing on that which is pure. And, and, and I take that to mean I'm focusing on that which has been redeemed. I'm looking at things through that lens of, of the redemption of Christ. You know, the world is full of things that are just sordid and carnal and, and smutty and, and our minds are just, we have that stuff being thrown at us all the time, but we're to focus on that which is pure, that which is clean, that which is redeemed by the Lord. And then he says, whatever is lovely, lovely has the idea of that which is admirable or agreeable to behold or to consider. And then he ends with whatever things are of good report. And that refers to that which is well spoken of, or that which is praiseworthy, or that which is highly regarded, or well thought of. It's something or someone that it deservedly enjoys a good reputation. And so we ask ourselves, are we concentrating when it relates to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, are we concentrating on that which is good, the good that we see in others? Or are we dwelling upon their faults, 
Are we focusing on you know, the, those parts of them that, that still need to be repaired? It's one of the things I love about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul makes this statement. He says that I am choosing. This is how I choose to, to look at life as I want to know no man after the flesh. In other words, Paul says, when I look at other people, I'm not looking at their flesh. I'm not looking at who they are in the flesh. And then he says that this, he basically puts it this way. I just want to know one of two things. Are they in Christ or are they not in Christ? And if they're in Christ, if they know Jesus, that's how I want to see them. I want to see them as a brother or sister in the Lord. I want to see them as somebody you know that, that the Lord is working on. And if they're not in Christ, I want them to get saved. That was his outlook. That was how he looked at things. So Paul says here, he ends this with, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So Paul's final technique for overcoming worry is to meditate on that which is excellent and praiseworthy. So joy Versus, so joy over anxiety is connected to our prayer life, but also our thought life. Now, Paul's going to wrap up things now, and he's going to give us three final reasons why he was given to rejoice. And it's going to be wrapped up in his contentment, his confidence, and his connection. Let's look at, first of all, his contentment, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. In other words, he's thanking them for their support for him. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, there was a time where they were unable to support Paul financially like they were now. But then he says this, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound in everything and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. Paul says, I've learned how to be content. That's a hard one, isn't it? Contentment is hard for us. How many, don't raise your hand, but how many, how many people do you know that are content? How many people do you know in your life, in your friendship group, that you just say, they are content? How many of you are content? It's hard. But I want you to note that Paul says, I've learned to be content. In other words, this is not something that comes natural to any of us. Contentment is a learned behavior. And the word contentment actually means sufficient. So contentment is rooted in the eternal God rather than in our temporal selves. Paul, I think part, part of Paul's reason why he was able to walk in contentment is how, how we really began this whole study in the beginning of this book where Paul refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That was a big part of his contentment, that he looked at his life and said, my life, I'm a servant of Jesus, I'm given over to Jesus, that, that my lot in life is up to him. So he says, and no matter what state I am, whether it's abased, brought low, made level, we could say poor, or abounding, he says, I'm satisfied because my sufficiency is in him, 
in Jesus and not in me. That's an important lesson to learn. But it's a hard lesson. It's a hard one. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't try to get ahead or if your boss at work is, you know, wants to give you a raise, you're like, no, I'm good, you know. <laughs> I'm all right. I don't, I don't need that. No, no, it's not, not saying that at all. But the idea is I'm not making changing my physical condition or status, I'm not making that my main focus in life. It's not what I'm striving after. You know, Keith Green, some of you are old enough to remember him. He was one of my favorite Christian artists. He used to sing this song that, where he simply said this, you do your best, you pray that it's blessed, and God will take care of the rest. And I think that's a good thing. I'm doing my best, and I'm praying that God blesses it, but I'm trusting that, you know, he's going to give the increase. He's going to do what he needs to do. I don't need to be striving to try to, you know, create something for myself that, that isn't in his will. I'm going to be content and satisfied in the sufficiency of Jesus and where he has me. You see, here's the reason why we need to catch this. Our situation might change, but my relationship with Jesus never will. My situation could change. It could get worse. We could be in for some tough times. But we can still have that contentment in the midst of the difficulty if our contentment is in our relationship with Jesus. Then I can be at rest with, okay, this is where he has me. And again, that's easier said than done. And I think the reason why Paul, he uses that term, I've learned to be content, is because Paul's life was full of so many ups and downs and so many things that happened to him that he had no control over, like getting shipwrecked. He didn't know that was going to happen, but it happened to him. The boat gets completely destroyed that he's on, and you know he's, he's clinging for his life. Paul had all these ups and downs. You know, he's put in prison. He's beaten. He had all these things that he went through. And I think through all of that, that's why Paul could say, hey, I've learned to be content in whatever state that I'm in because the longer he went through those ups and downs and those situations with Jesus, he knew Jesus has me right where he wants me. Now, Paul's contentment in Jesus led to the second reason for his joy that we see in verse 13, his confidence. He says, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I got to say, this is one of the most abused, but also one of the, mis- or the most undervalued verses in the entire Bible. The abuse comes from ignoring the context. Paul's writing from prison, and his life was hard. He's waiting for his impending death. That was scary. But in the midst of that, Paul says, but I've learned to be content, and I know that I can get through whatever my future holds because, this is the context, because through Christ I'm being strengthened. That's the context. In other words, whatever God has in store, Paul's saying, I know that he will strengthen me to get through it. That's the context. Now, here's where the abuse comes in. It's the guy at the gym who's going to try to deadlift deadlift 450 pounds. And he's chanting, I can do all things. I can do all things. 
through Christ who strengthens me. And then he pulls out his back, you know. Or it's the novice surfer paddling out at 20-foot pipeline chanting, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. I can do this, and he drowns. Or it's the student who hasn't studied, who's chanting, I can do all things. I know I'm going to, and they fail the test. You know, that's where this gets abused all the time. This verse doesn't mean that you can do anything that you set your mind to through Christ who strengthens you. That's ignoring the context. But here's the thing. We must not also undervalue this verse either because some get so focused on the context that they're afraid to apply to anything but Paul and him being in prison. And they look at their life and say, well, I'm not in prison facing my impending death. So this verse doesn't relate to me. That's an extreme in the other direction. Here's the right view. Paul knew the situation that he was in was God-ordained. And through the strength of Jesus working in his life, he had the confidence that he was going to be able to handle it. And when you and I realize that the situation that we are in If we're following Jesus and we're walking after him and we find ourselves in a difficult situation, that that we can look at that and know that that was God-ordained, that God allowed that, and so I'm seeking him and I'm trusting that he's going to strengthen me through it, that I can make it through that situation because God is going to give me the strength to make it through because he's allowed this. He's ordained this situation that I'm in. I love the way the Living Bible puts this verse. I can do everything that God asked me to do with the help of Christ who gives me his strength and power. So you lose your job. Not prophesying, I hope here, but, uh, you know, you, let's say you lose your job. And again, you didn't see that coming. You don't know what to do. You can trust. I can do this. He's going to get me through this because I can do all things that God's ordained this. This didn't take him by surprise. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You get a ministry opportunity that just seems way over your head. You're just freaking out. Like, I, I man, how can I do this? But you know that, that this is from God, that God's calling you to take the step of faith. You can trust that I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Finally, the third reason for Paul's joy was his connection. Paul knew that one of the ways the Lord was going to strengthen him was through the assistance of others. Paul could sing, I get by with a little help from my friends. That could have been his song because his ministry had been greatly helped by the financial financial support of the church in Philippi. And Paul thanks the church in Philippi for their generous gift. And he compares their giving to three familiar things. First of all, if you're taking notes, to a fruit-bearing tree. Look back at verse 10. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. And then skip down to verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. And now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, which I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. 
For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Notice that word flourished in verse 10. It carries the idea of a flower or a tree that is budding or blossoming. And there was a time where the church in Philippi, their support for Paul had stopped. And it was like a a tree or a plant that had dried up. But through the sending of Epaphroditus, remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, they sent Epaphroditus to bring a gift to Paul. So through the sending of Epaphroditus, it was flourishing again. And Paul says, look, not that I seek the gift, verse 17, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So he's saying that giving is like planting seeds, and you plant a seed, and you water it, and fruit is going to be the result of it. So that's how Paul saw their giving. He saw it, it was like planting seeds. And when the church in Philippi was supporting Paul, the fruit that was coming out of his ministry, remember we talked about how the gospel spread throughout the whole Praetorian Guard? That was a part of their fruit. Remember how we talked about that when he was in prison, Paul wrote four books in the Bible that we call the prison epistles. That was a part of their fruit. But I want you to notice that Paul frames this. He actually mixes the metaphors here. Look at verse 17 again. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Notice that word account. That word account literally refers to interest occurred on the credit side of a ledger. Or interest occurred in in an account. And so what Paul is saying is that they're giving, here's the second way, it's like investment banking. You give and you reap a spiritual investment in that partnership. The people who gave to Paul were partnering with Paul and with the Lord in the ministry that Paul was doing. And that's what happens when people, you know, they give to a church or they give to a ministry. They're partnering with that church and that ministry and they're partnering with the Lord. And the fruit that is, that comes out of that is a part of their reward. The, there's an investment that goes into their spiritual bank account, if you would is the way that Paul is looking at this. So Paul saw their giving as a fruit-bearing tree, as investment banking in the kingdom of God, but he also saw it as an act of worship. Look at verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound, and I am full, and having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The highest motivation to do anything, to give anything, is because it is well-pleasing to God. Why is it well-pleasing to God? It's not because God needs our money. Not at all. It's well-pleasing to God because giving is not God's way of raising funds, but it is his way of raising kids. Our God's a giver. And he wants us to be givers too, so he gives us that opportunity to partner with him in that way. 
And notice the promise that is connected to sacrificial giving as an act of worship. In verse 19, he says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, most of you know that verse. Many of you have quoted that verse, but have you ever considered the context? The context is financial giving. It's partnering with the Lord through the giving of the tithes and the offerings. Paul is commending them for their giving, and then he's saying, and and this is what's coming to you. But this verse gets separated so often from its context, and it's just sort of this blanket statement that people like to throw out that, hey, and my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory. But you know that a verse or every text has a context and it's been said that a text without a context or when it's taken out of a context, it's, it's a pretext. So in the other words, the idea is you can make the Bible just say whatever you want it to say. So every text has a context and the context of verse 19 is what Paul's been talking about here. It's that of giving. So what Paul is saying to the Philippians is this, you have been generous in your finances. As a result, my God is going to supply your needs. In fact, notice again the word full in verse 18. Paul says, as a result of their giving, he says, I am full. And notice the word supply in verse 19. Those two words, I am full and you made me full and God will supply, in the Greek, it's all the same word. It's the word polero in the Greek and it means to fill up or to fill to the brim. So Paul is saying in the Greek language, you guys filled me up and God is going to fill you up. That's what he's saying. You made me full and my God is going to make Now, this is not the only place that the Bible talks about this. In fact, in the book of Malachi, God rebuked the nation of Israel for their lack of giving. He said this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he said, in your tithes and your contributions. And then he gives this challenge. And this challenge goes right with what Paul's saying here. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need. So what God's wanting us to see is that there's a blessing in giving. He's not saying that's why you give. You don't give to get, but you understand there's a blessing in giving. It's almost like God's saying, look, you're never, ever going to be able to outgive me. There's similar promises in the book of Proverbs. I'll give you two, and then we're going to wrap this up. Proverbs 11, verse 25 says, The generous soul will be made rich, He who waters will himself be watered. And in Proverbs 3, verse 9, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Our God is a giver, and he invites us to be givers as well. He invites us into what he is doing in the kingdom of God through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And as we do that, we're partnering with God in his work in the kingdom. Let's wrap this up. Verse 20. 
Paul's final words. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of the the household of Caesar. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And everyone said? Amen. Amen.